Well, everybody, I am so happy that you came to church today. I know for many of you this is a regular thing, and thanks for making that a regular thing. And for some of us, it's the first time you've been to church in a while, you're a little bit nervous. We especially want to say thanks for coming, and um, we hope that you find this is a safe place to explore the Bible, to explore who Jesus is. You'll notice that you're not around perfect people. Um, everybody here is a hypocrite in recovery. We're doing our best. And we're moving forward. So uh, we hope this is a place where you can find out, figure out who Jesus is and um, deal with him. Uh, I think that's what all human beings need to do. So through the summer, we've been looking at one particular book in the Bible. If you're not familiar with the Bible, it's broken up into different books and there's different authors. And it covers thousands of years of human history. The book we're looking at is Romans. Romans is written by the Apostle Paul. He writes it while he's in the city of Corinth. And he's writing to this infantile church. It's 57 AD. So you're just 25 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in Rome, this massive city of one million people. Imagine a million people in 57 AD. There are somewhere between two and 300 followers of Jesus. So they are this tiny little minority. And Paul writes them a letter because he knows they live in the most influential city in the world. And he also knows they don't have a Bible yet. They really don't know much. And it's Paul's letter, which is so vast. The book of Romans covers who God is, who we are, how we relate to the government. We'll look at that in a couple of weeks. And then in Romans 10, 10, uh, 10, 9, and 10, which we'll look at today, um, he's going to ask deal with a couple of questions. One, what about the Jewish people, too, is how in the world do we get saved? Okay, it's a legitimate question. How in the world do we get saved? Hi, guys. Um, sorry. This is when your pastor has ADD. He just notices things like that. So we've been memorizing, many of us, no obligation, but I've got these bookmarks, and it's all 10 of the key verses. And so here's the verse that we'll look at today. These are available at the Welcome Center, by the way. Uh, Romans 10, 9, and 10. Uh, This is from the New International Version. We'll read it this way. If you declare with your mouth, three simple words, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Simple enough. You will be saved. Now, this scripture is quite well known. But there's a challenge. The challenge is is that we make this formulaic. We kind of don't pay attention to everything that Paul's saying before and after. And we just find, because everybody has this question, what in the world does it take to have a relationship with God? And this seems to boil it down to do a very, very simple thing. You confess with your mouth, you believe in your heart, you will be saved. Now, let me give you an example of how this can be mistreated or misunderstood. Uh, For 14 years... Jay and I served at the University of Oregon, which is a, just a crazy liberal campus. We had a ball there, right? So we ran a house where 60 students lived, and we had a, we had a room where we could hold services for three to 400 people. And this group came in. They were known as the local church. They're kind of a fringe movement. And the local church came in, and they loved this verse. And so this phrase, Jesus is Lord, their sole goal was to get students at the University of Oregon to say Jesus is Lord. So they had all kinds of tricks. One of the tricks I remember is they would write down on these little cards, um, just this phrase, Jesus is Lord, and they would go to university students 
and they would give them a card and they say, would you please read this out loud? And if somebody said, read it and said, Jesus is Lord, they go, okay, thank you very much. Job done. You said the magic words. I'm going to move on now. That was literally how they treated this. Now, I always wondered what they do with the second part of the verse. You believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So we can look at it as formulaic or we can look at it in its context. And it is beautiful. It has this incredible structure. It has this um, poignant truth there. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to back up. Let's read from the beginning of the chapter on and we'll see how this fits in. And remember, Paul, up to this point, has been talking to the Romans, reassuring a deep insecurity they have. Here's the insecurity. There's Jewish people in the church. And the Jewish people often remind them that they are God's chosen people. And most of the Christians in Rome were not Jewish. And so Paul in chapter 9 has gone through and he said this. He said, you know what? He said, God's love is big enough for everybody. Jewish and non-Jewish. And he chooses you. Now, Jesus was a Jew. Paul is a Jew. And so Paul's going to address at the beginning of the chapter, what's God going to do with the Jewish people? Let's read together. And we're going to read from a unique version. This is from the message. The message is a transliteration, a little bit different than a translation. A guy named Eugene Peterson translated the Bible into the message. A fellow Montanan, he lives up on Flathead Lake. And it's um, in English that will be easy for us to grasp because this is a very challenging text. Believe me, friends, all I want for Israel, for his people, is what's best for Israel. Salvation, nothing less. I want it with all my heart and I pray to God for it all the time. Paul's looking back on his people, the Jewish people, and he's saying, this is what I long for. I readily admit that the Jews are impressively energetic regarding God, but they're doing everything exactly backwards. They don't seem to realize that this comprehensive setting things right, that is salvation, is God's business. And a most flourishing business, it is. Right across the street, they set up their own salvation shops. He's, he's talking about synagogues. That was the gathering place where the Jews would worship and noisily hawk their wares. After all these years of refusing to really deal with God on his terms, insisting instead on making their own deals, they have nothing to show for it. The earlier revelation, he's talking about the Old Testament, the first two-thirds of the Bible, written before Jesus. The earlier revelation was intended simply to get us ready for the Messiah. Messiah, a Hebrew word, means the promised one, the one who has set it right, Jesus, who then puts everything right for those who trust him to do it. Moses wrote that anyone who insists on using the law code to live right before God soon discovers it's not so easy. Every detail of life regulated by fine print. But trusting God to shape the right living in us is a different story. No precarious climb up to heaven to recruit the Messiah. No dangerous descent into hell to rescue the Messiah. You're not responsible for your own salvation. Now, what is Paul saying here? 
I just want to show you a, a simple little diagram. Okay, he's saying there's two ways, two ways for a human being to achieve God, to achieve righteousness. The first way is this. It's the law, 600 plus laws written in the Old Testament, laws that govern how you live, how you do business, your hygiene, how you worship, all of this. He goes, here's one way, here's one way, and this is the Jewish way. This is what God had given them in the Old Testament. The law plus you keep it, obedience. And unfortunately, it's not you keep 50% or 60 or 70 or 80 or 90. You keep it all. How many people in the room made a mistake this week that they regret? You tried. You tried to be a good person, right? And everybody who doesn't raise their hand, you're just not remembering correctly, right? We, I don't care how nice you are, how good you've tried to be, how much energy you've put into being a good moral person. There's something broken in us, and we're never able to completely live it out. And that's what Paul says. He says, here's the deal. You do this, and you find out this isn't easy. The law, and you keep it. Your obedience equals righteousness. He says, this is the Jewish way. This is the way that God had given them. What they missed is that God provided a second way. Second way is this. Jesus, who lived this out, perfect obedience, a human, a God human, who lives out this perfect life, Jesus, and what do you do? You believe it, it's faith. You trust him that he can live this out, that he did. That equals righteousness. Really, there's, there's two ways. Trying. I try harder. I try to recruit the Messiah. I deal with God on my terms. I do religious, uh, pious things in order to uh, receive his approval. I can try or I can trust. Try or trust. Paul's saying this. I want all of my Jewish friends, all my family members, I want them to trust because they have been trying for so long and it hasn't gotten them where they want to go. Instead, trust that Jesus saves. Paul's saying this, salvation is God's business. It's not my business. I cannot save myself. In verse 13, Paul's going to say, anyone can be saved. And God wants everyone to be saved. It's not just for a select group of people. It's not for people with the right pedigree or the right genetics. It's not for people who have lived perfect lives. He says, no, no, this is, what Jesus did is for everyone, anyone can be saved. He says, there's no difference now between Jew and Gentile because God's love is so big, it embraces all of us. Paul's gonna go on to say, the, the gospel, you'll hear that term a lot. It literally means the good news. It's, it's the story of Jesus. The gospel is not just merely the communication of words. Okay, it's not just more information. The, when, when the good news is preached, when it's talked about, when it's shared by you, the, there's more happening than just the transference, transference of information. The, the Holy Spirit of God, God's Spirit is working in people's lives, preparing them giving them faith. God even gives faith. So for some of us, it was easy to believe in God. 
just, somehow you just trusted, you believed. And for others of, us, others of us, it's been incredibly difficult. The way our minds work, maybe our experiences from the past, to even believe that there's a world beyond this world, to believe that there's a creator, it has been a struggle. Here's what I know. God wants everyone to know him. And it's available to anyone. And when the news is preached about who Jesus is, when it is communicated, God is there with his spirit working in your heart. And you, some of us in the room, you're feeling a little bit uncomfortable right now. Here's why. Because God is working in you to draw you, to confirm. He's actually giving you faith at this moment to begin to believe. And it's not about you trying harder. It's not about you being a better person. It's about you trusting, trusting in who Jesus is. Okay, that's the first section. Now let's move on. We'll continue to read through the message. And we're going to look at that key verse in particular. All right, back to Romans 10. It's the word of faith that welcomes God to go to work and set things right for us. This is the core of our preaching. Say the welcoming word to God. Jesus is my master. NIV says, Jesus is Lord. Same phrase. Embracing body and soul, God's work of doing in us what he did in raising Jesus from the dead. That's it. You're not doing anything. You're simply calling out to God, trusting him to do it for you. That's salvation. Trusting him. That's salvation. With your whole being, you embrace God setting things right. And then you say it right out loud. God has set everything right between him and me. Scripture reassures us. No one who trusts God like this, heart and soul, will ever regret it. It's exactly the same no matter what a person's religious background may be. The same God for all of us, acting the same incredibly generous way to everyone who calls out for help. Everyone who calls help God gets help. It's available. So as we talk through this, I think from this key verse, if, if you declare with your mouth, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One of the things that Paul's saying, this is point number one, is there are two aspects to this idea of salvation, okay? There's an inward and there's an outward. Let's talk about the outward. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, to us, it's three simple words. Jesus is Lord. But we miss, we miss a little bit about the context. We miss who this is being written to. So here's, here's one of the things that Rome had to do. How in the world do you keep together an empire that spans from India to Portugal, from North Africa to England, without communication devices? You have armies. It takes months to get them information. Well, along came Julius Caesar, a man who changed what it meant to be the emperor of Rome. Here's what Julius Caesar decided. You know, people might be able 
to be more cohesive in this kingdom if they viewed the emperor as not just a man, but a god. And so Julius Caesar started this phrase throughout the empire. A Roman would beat his chest and say, Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. And that was a statement. That was a statement of faith. It was a statement that he wasn't just a God. It was a statement that Rome saved you. It was a statement that Caesar was all-powerful. Caesar is Lord. And then that catches on. And the following emperors emphasize that even more. Now, it's 57 AD. Paul's writing this book to the Romans. Nero is on the throne. Nero, who is psychologically disturbed, who will burn the city of Rome, blame it on Christians. He will start the first persecution, burning human beings, followers of Jesus, alive for entertainment. He is so desperate for affirmation. He is so desperate because the military leaders do not respect him. He makes this statement even stronger. You say Caesar is Lord. And he, along with Domitian, a following emperor, will introduce this. You bow your right knee and you declare Caesar is Lord. He is not a man. He is a God. He holds this world together. Salvation comes from military might. Salvation comes from political power. And what does Paul say? A few hundred followers of Jesus living in a city of a million people who all say Caesar is Lord. He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not Lord. Politics do not save us. Power does not save us. What Paul is saying is deeply subversive. Rome can't save. Jesus is Lord. Paul says, and it's not about you having a private, convenient faith. It's not about me. Well, I I believe that Jesus is Lord. Paul says, you say it. You're willing to say it no matter how that might jeopardize your future. Later, this would be the line that Christians would die for. Under Domitian in 90 A.D., If you did not say that Caesar was Lord, you would be killed. Rome felt so threatened by these Christians who said, no, Jesus is Lord. They said, no, 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 Caesar is Lord. And if you weren't willing to say Caesar is Lord, they'd take your life. It goes to the point in 90 AD, John is going to write about this in the book of Revelation. The, The emperors so wanted to hold their power that you weren't allowed to buy or sell anywheres in a marketplace, anywhere in the Roman Empire, unless you took what what John calls in Revelation the mark of the beast. So it got to this point. We have dozens of archaeological findings. In the local market, you'd raised your crops. You were a farmer, and you wanted to bring your crops and sell them. You needed to provide for your family. Before you could enter into the marketplace, there were these stations where you bowed your knee. You said, Caesar is Lord. You paid your tax to Caesar, giving to him as if he were God, and they would put a mark on your right hand or on your forehead with this black ink that signified that you had said Caesar is Lord. 
John calls it the mark of the beast. It was the empirical cult, the cult of the emperor. Before all this takes place, Paul writes to the Romans, and he says, who's Lord? Who's in charge? You've been told to say Caesar is Lord, but if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And he's not talking about a one-moment phrase where I, I just say Caesar is not Lord and Jesus is Lord. Everything's taken care of. This idea of being Lord, the, the word is kyrios in, in the Greek, K-Y-R-I-O-U-S. And it, it's a lifetime. This is what I found. I, I, I've been trying to follow Jesus for, I don't know, something over 30 years. I've said Jesus is Lord, but it's taken me at least 30 years to make him Lord. Because this means that Jesus is Lord, not, not just of my Sunday mornings or my Saturday nights, but he is Lord of my vocation, what I do for a living. He's Lord of my academics if I'm in school. He's Lord of my mind, my thinking. I want, I want him to be Lord of my recreation, of my desires, Lord of my goals, Lord of my hobbies, Lord of my entertainment choices, Lord of my body and my sexuality, Lord of my financial life. And Paul's saying, are you ready to say Jesus is Lord and then jump into an adventure of learning what that means? Here's what I found. There are times in my life where I think, oh yeah, I've given him lordship, but I find it interesting that sometimes I take it back and I think, actually, I'll choose to be Lord in this area for a little while. It's a lifetime of saying, no, Jesus, you're Lord of that worry. Jesus I choose to bow my knee to you in terms of my thinking right now. You are Lord. Jesus is Lord. The outward aspect to salvation. Some of us in the room, you've been walking with him for a long time. And the biggest challenge ahead of us is this. Learning how to make him Lord over certain parts of our life, which we've reserved for ourselves. Some of us. You're thinking about this, and you're like, whoa, I thought all I had to do was believe. Well, Paul's saying, no, no, you confess. My God is not politics. His armies can't save me. Jesus alone saves. He is Lord. He's going to be Lord of everything. You have to think deeply, am I willing to give it all to him? All to him. Now, there's a second aspect. That's the outward. That's the confession. Faith isn't just some private little deal. I wish it was. Wouldn't it be nice? Yes, I believe. But my belief is private. No, you confess with your mouth. The inward part is you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. You believe in your heart. Now, in, in the first century world, the heart represented the place where you made your decisions. We know more about the brain today. In the first century, the brain was the most confusing organ, which it probably is still. Like, what does it do? What does it control? It's, it's neurons and connections and chemicals. But in the ancient world, your heart was where you made your decisions. And we still have that. We still have that in some sense. Like if you went through something painful, you might say, oh, she broke my heart. And you don't mean like that organ that pumps blood broke apart. No, no, no. You mean like 
that core of who I am was affected. So the heart. Why in the world does Paul say, here's the thing you need to believe? Because there's a lot to believe. He doesn't say, and you believe in your heart that Jesus was the Son of God. He doesn't say, and you believe in your heart that he died for you on a cross. He doesn't say, you believe in your heart that he did miracles. I mean, there are so many things that Paul could have put in there. But he says this, here's the one thing I need you to believe, the inward aspect of salvation, that God raised Jesus from the dead. Why? Because the resurrection was the end of the work that Jesus did. It means that, remember trusting or trying? It means that he lived out that life we could never live. God found it successful, that worked, and now you're resurrected. It means that Jesus isn't dead. Christianity is incredibly unique. We don't worship a dead person, not a dead prophet. I know you can go to churches all over the world and they'll have an emaciated, dying Jesus on a cross. That is incredibly important, but it's not the end of the story. Do you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that he is alive and at work today, that he is Lord over my life, over this nation, over the universe? Paul says this in the book of Corinthians. He says, listen, without the resurrection... We should be pitied above everyone else because we've been forgiven, but we're still dead. But if Jesus is alive, that means there is a movement happening. That means resurrection is possible for me. That means that this is not some historical religion that I'm a part of. It's, it's a living, breathing movement that Jesus is leading. Do you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead? So, I've been working through this, right, uh, last couple of weeks reading. And, and I, I got to tell you, this text is really challenging. I came across the work of some of the reformers, particularly Martin Luther. Martin Luther, so we're going to go back about 500 years. I know nobody came to church this morning for a lesson in Latin, but you're going to get one anyway. Okay? I'm going to give you three Latin words, which has helped me understand what is it that Paul is getting at. It's not some formula, but it's much bigger. So Martin Luther said, when it comes to salvation, there's three steps that human beings go through. Okay? Here's the first Latin word. You ready? Notitia. Notitia. Knowledge, intellect, and understanding having to do with the mind. So, and actually, Paul's going to write about this in the verses after what we read. He says, somebody has to tell the truth. There has to be something for you to believe. He calls it the good news. The good news of who Jesus is, who we are, what Jesus did, that he's alive today. There is truth. So this process of believing, first of all, it takes accurate information. You and I are not saved by information. You're not saved by information. There's no way. But we can't be saved without information. Somebody has to tell us the story. And truth, ladies and gentlemen, as unpopular as this is today, the truth is not relative. There's no such thing as my truth. I've heard people say that a lot lately. Well, that's not my truth. I wish there was my truth and your truth. The problem is there's only truth truth. I don't get to decide what is true. Because if I get to decide what is true, I'll choose what's convenient for me. There's truth. That's part of how we believe. Let me give you an example. Okay, 
I'm in a building, the lights go off. I've never been in this building before. And I realize the building's on fire. And I have no idea how to get out of the building. And I call out loud, oh my goodness, how do I get out? And a voice says, go down the hallway in front of you. Take the first doorway on the right. Go three flights down and stairs. The exit is on your left. I just received truth. If I stood there and memorized the directions, does anything change? The truth is essential. I have to participate in the truth. I have to walk down the hallway. I need to go down the three flights of stairs. I need to take the exit on the left. But without the truth, I wouldn't have any option. That's what Paul's saying. Here you have, this is the truth. Do you believe it? Here's the second Greek word, a census. A census. It is um, conviction. So it's the, I hear it. I hear the story of Jesus. I hear who I am. I hear that I need a Savior. And you know what? It seems right to me. I believe it. There's something in me that says, mm, yes. The, the most common word for um, conviction in the Old Testament is the word we translate amen. Ready for it in Hebrew? Much rougher. Amen. You see that? I spit, sorry. Amen. I did it again. Can't stop. Amen. Which means this. I believe it. So be it. So we have this tradition now. People pray. And we don't know. We all think we're saying amen, which is like a period after a prayer. You're all saying, so be it. I believe it. I believe it. There's knowledge of truth. And then there's a place for my senses or my conviction. You know what? There's something to that. But it can't end there. Here's why it can't end there. In the book of James, James says this. Here's the problem with ending there. The demons in hell believe that Jesus existed. And they're convinced of his power. So if I stop there, I've only gone two-thirds of the way. So here's the last word. This is the word that Luther introduces, fiducia. Fiducia, which is commitment, trust, to fully rely upon. It's where we get our word trust, where we get our word faith. And in particular, this idea of fully rely upon. Um, I could put my hands on this table, right? Say it's true. The idea of faith is that I put all of my weight, I transition to where if you move the table, I fall. I am fully, slip there for a second, I am fully relying upon. It's not just information, and it's not just conviction, but I believe. Fiducia, I put my weight on. I jump into this thing. Maybe I can give you an illustration that will help us understand these three words. So in the early 1900s, there's this Frenchman. His name's Charles Blondin. And uh, he's five foot three, 135 pounds. And he's a trained acrobat, but he's never been able to make a living. So he comes to the United States of America and he's trying to do street performances, but just nothing's working. And then he visits 
Niagara Falls. Okay, anybody been to Niagara Falls? It's big, it's impressive. On one side is the United States, on the other side is Canada. And he gets this nutty idea in his mind. Okay, he's been a tightrope walker, acrobat. He says, I'm going to string a rope across Niagara Falls, and I'm going to cross it, and people are going to pay to come see me. He does this for three summers straight. Show you a picture. This is Charles Blondin on the rope over Niagara Falls. So the very first time he does it, people don't believe that this can be done. 25,000 people buy tickets to watch him. 25,000 people. They ride trains. They come from everywhere. And he's a showman. So he begins. He's got his 38-foot-long um, ash pole that weighs 40 pounds. And he walks through. He walks from the United States to Canada in 23 minutes. The rope sags 50 feet in the middle. The winds are blowing from the falls. It's wet. People are... They, they can't believe. He comes back from Canada to the United States in eight minutes. So he does this time after time. Word gets out. He sells more tickets. But here's the problem. People didn't think it could be done. But now they realize this guy can do it. So for three summers straight, he walks on a tightrope across Niagara Falls, and he sells tickets. But every summer, he has to do something new in order to get more people to come. So he gets to the point when ticket sales are going down, he gets his manager, who's been making money along with him, and he convinces him to ride piggyback. So he takes him piggyback, the 1,300 feet across the tightrope. And then that's not enough. So guess what he does next? He takes a small stove, and he takes eggs and a chair. And in the middle of the chasm, he sets up, balances on a chair and cooks an omelet above Niagara Falls. Woo! People are cheering. So it goes on and on. He does somersaults all the way across. Keep the tickets going. Now, it's been three years. Everybody's like, I guess this can be done. This guy's never fallen. He's crossed hundreds of times. So when he gets to the end, this is what he does. It's a wheelbarrow. He thinks this is going to be the next step. So he's on the U.S. side, and he asks these questions. He says, does everybody believe that I could cross the tightrope with a wheelbarrow? Now, yeah. Do you believe that I can cross with a person in the wheelbarrow? They all believe, yeah. I need a volunteer. No, his whole show is dependent on getting volunteer. No one will volunteer. They all believe, okay? They all have information. They've seen the reports that he's done this hundreds of times. They're convinced, yeah, you can do this. You can do this with a stove. You can do this with your manager on your back. But no one's ready to jump in the wheelbarrow. So he crosses to Canada with an empty wheelbarrow thinking that perhaps the Canadians will have more faith. Do you believe I can cross? Yeah. Do you believe I can cross with a person in the wheelbarrow? Yeah. Who wants to volunteer? Nobody. Out of all the tricks he's gotten, this is the one that doesn't work because someone has to say, I'm in. 
Fiducia, I have faith. I will entrust my future to you. I'll climb in the wheelbarrow and I'll have no control and you either make it or I die. No volunteers. He did that one time. I think Paul is saying this. If you confess with your mouth, your hope is not that politics can save you, that militaries can save you, that your nation can save you. Jesus is Lord. Caesar is not. And you're willing to let him be Lord of all things. And you can believe in your heart. And I'm not talking just like, oh yeah, I believe that happened. No, but you are throwing yourself in. You're trusting. You've entrusted yourself to him entirely. You believe in the depths of your heart that God raised him from the dead. That he is alive today. That he's Lord of the universe. This is what Paul says. You'll be saved. Be saved. We pray with me. Lord, I am just continually humbled by Paul's brilliance as he writes to this small group of people in Rome. Thank you that you want all people to be saved. Thank you for helping us to understand there's an inward and an outward aspect to that. Lord, for the veterans in the room who have been following you for some time, this is what we say. Jesus is Lord. And it's something we'll continue to say. And it's a process of allowing you to be Lord of every aspect of our life. That we surrender and we declare that Religion is not Lord, that politics is not Lord, that human effort is not Lord, that Jesus is Lord, He's Master. And would you help us in that long process of surrendering everything to you? That there would be no secrets, there would be no corners, there would be no hideouts that we reserve for ourselves, but from our vocation to our bodies, from our finances to our hobbies. You will be Lord. And then, Lord, for some of us who are exploring and wondering and guessing, I guess there's an invitation for us right now to declare that Jesus is Lord and then believe in your heart that he is alive. And not the type of belief that's distant, but to climb in to entrust ourselves fully to you, to abandon everything that we've had up to this point that makes us secure, to say, it's not about me trying, it's about me trusting. And so I will climb in and I will say, Jesus, carry me. Jesus, save me. I'm dependent upon you. If that's you this morning and it's your moment to surrender, to truly trust, to believe, would you do this? It's going to take courage. I just ask you to, to raise your hand and catch my eye. Yes, sir. You're his. You're his. Yeah, right there. I see you. Yeah, okay. I see your hand. Anybody in the middle section here, if that's you, raise your hand, would you please? Okay, yeah. You're his. On my left, you're right. If that's you, wave at me, would you please? Okay, right there. Yes, sir. Yeah. All right. Beautiful. Anybody over 
over here if that's you. Okay, and right here as well. Yes, sir, right in the front, beautiful. If you're in the balcony, catch my eye, would you please? Okay, there. Yeah, you're his. You're forgiven. It's a new start, new start for you. Yeah, right there. You're his. He loves you so much. I want you to know that. And right down here as well. Yes, yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. Yeah, all right. Yes, sir. Yeah. You're jumping in. You're climbing in. You're trusting him. He's Lord. Beautiful. Hey, there were just a ton of people that raised their hands. Would you applaud every one of them? The courage that it takes. Belief. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. I, everybody raised their hand. I'm just so, so proud of you. It's the beginning of a new journey. Um, in particular, would you head to one of these I Have Decided banners? There's one in the balcony as well. I want to get something in your hand to help you on this journey. Everybody else, God loves you more than you could ever imagine. Be his hands and his feet and his mouthpiece. If you need prayer for anything, there's people up front you can trust. God bless you. See you soon.